So it's a mountain, Buddha Dharma Sangha, that's faced in front of us and ourselves, surrounded by all the sentient beings who all want to be safe and all have their own fears and concerns. Let's generate our motivation. So sometimes we may uh, feel quite nervous or scared or insecure. And often when we feel that way, we uh, withdraw into ourselves and kind of put up a series of walls around us, and then at the same time feel lonely and disengaged from everybody else, even when we're the ones who withdrew. But in Santi Deva's text, he says that bodhicitta is the balm for all difficulties and problems, and it's the elixir that brings joy to the mind. So when we are withdrawn or nervous or scared, generating bodhicitta is a very good antidote to change how we are looking at the world and relating to the world. But the problem is that when we're sad or angry or withdrawn, we don't want to generate bodhicitta. We want to sit there and be miserable. Well, we don't really want to sit there and be miserable, but one part of us is quite enjoying sitting there and being miserable. So sometimes we have to nudge ourselves a bit, remember the value of bodhicitta, remember the joy of bodhicitta, and then do our best to generate it. So take a moment and do that now. So I was thinking about the uh, questions that people were asking His Holiness last night. Yeah, it was quite interesting to see the diversity but also the uniformity of the questions. 
and to hear how His Holiness responded to all of them. Yeah. And I don't know if you noticed, but the answers kind of came, kept coming back to two things. And it was amazing that somehow um, it seemed that many people didn't get that. Yeah. He kept coming back to bodhicitta and that things do not exist the way they appear to us. Yeah. And in listening to him address all these different questions, um, at, at some point it just uh, seems so clear. Yes, the path uh, doesn't have to be so complicated. It's these two things. And if you keep them in your mind, then uh, you can navigate well. Um, So I I must say I did learn one new thing from His Holiness's answers. Yeah, I learned how to respond when people ask me uh, how to bring up their children. (laughs) Yeah, I always get stuck in those questions, you know. What they were asking him, I get asked too. How do I answer this? So now I just say, well, as the Dalai Lama says, yeah, I don't have kids, so uh, you parents have to figure that out. (laughs) Yeah, but it was quite interesting how all those questions, diverse as the questions seemed, the responses all came to the same thing, same point, yeah. Mm-hmm. But what do you know about that? What did he call it? The yoga that he did on the end of the first night? That practice? Oh, the, yeah, the um, all-encompassing yoga. Um, it's actually uh, a visualization you do usually during highest class tantra empowerments. Um, and it's done to generate bodhicitta and the wisdom realizing emptiness. And His Holiness... Uh, you know, extracted that and is giving that as a separate practice. And I I think it's really, it's beautiful when you do it, you know, in your daily practice. If you spend that time to do it, um, he usually does it rather quickly. He'll, he'll say, let's meditate on bodhicitta and, you know, uh, I'll be ready, like thinking, okay, 20 minutes on bodhicitta. And he does one minute and then you visualize the the moon disk at your heart, and similarly, one minute on uh, on emptiness and visualizing the dorje. So it, you know, if you do it as as he was doing it, then it doesn't take long. But I think uh, I know for myself, visualizing the moon and the uh, dorje at my heart, just that that feeling inside here of radiating you know, um, uh, with some understanding of bodhicitta and emptiness, uh, it makes a difference. So I would recommend that. And His Holiness was saying he would like us, you know, every day to remember bodhicitta and emptiness. So that's uh, a very good way to do it. Uh, About the point that when they were brought up at the very beginning, saying that... all of the answers ultimately came to two things. It boiled down to two things. Mm-hmm. So one way of looking at that is uh, he's also pointing at the source of the problems. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he calls them the two... The Tibetan term is... Dende. The two, great, the two biggest devils, mm-hmm. harmful devils within us are these two, mm-hmm. uh, both beginning with self, self something, self... Grasping. Grasping and self... Centeredness. Self-centered, self-centeredhood, yeah. self-centeredness. Uh, but it is in, very interesting to see where the self part of the two means different. Mm. 
and that needs to be uh, so it is not that easy to uh, point to what the sources of problems are when these are the two solutions because both the when it comes to calling the sources of the problems we call them by self something self something but mm -hmm. in both of them the self part of it means different yeah yeah one self exists and the other one doesn't doesn't exist <laughs> yes yeah. Yeah. and and in the case of one self is the self selfhood as in person mm -hmm. and in the case of the other it is not the self as in person but self as an identity yeah completely misconstrued baseless identity so uh, as whenever i hear his holiness point that out uh, i kind of get intrigued into thinking of the opposite of them mm. in terms of the sources and then also kind of feeling concerned that does anyone uh, get it or or, or mm. how would uh, some kind of uh, understand it yeah Did, did people understand what Geshe was saying? Do you see which which self exists in which term and which self doesn't? Yeah, the two brothers, devils. Yeah. <laughs> the two great brothers, devils, are self-grasping and self -grasping. So those two were... Okay. The, the two devil brothers are self-centeredness and self-grasping but in terms of self part of that is mm -hmm. very different and that makes the whole grasping part and self-centeredness part, part different yeah and then along with that if i may comment self-centeredness is in the questions when somebody asks does thinking of self equal to self-centeredness. Ah, uh, yeah. That mm -hmm. was very interesting. Mm -hmm. And this, so there's some work to be done to really pinpoint self-centeredness uh, and not mix it with sense of selfhood. What this? Sense of selfhood. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, is there any anything more about that? Okay, then um, we'll continue with where we are, or were. Two seventy three. Okay. So, nirvana and liberation. Yeah. So, although liberation and an arhat's nirvana often seem to be the same. In some contexts, they, uh, are, they may be somewhat different. And, you know, here, as it goes on describing, we see that, you know, again, uh, we hear one word, we want it to have the same meaning in every context, and, uh, and it doesn't, yeah? And so to be aware of that. In the previous section... This came up when we were talking about, um, what was it? That, mm, we were talking about something being called this, but it isn't really that. Uh, oh, maybe it's in this section. Okay, let's, let's keep going. Maybe it's in this se section that I'm thinking of. Okay. In the Sanskrit tradition, liberation... Uh, here being translated as vimukti, because there's two Sanskrit words that are translated as liberation. Um, sometimes they translate one as deliverance or salvation. Um, personally, those two terms are a bit too Christian for me, so I shy away from them. Um, but here, liberation as a translation for vimukti, um, or nampadroa, namdrol, in Tibetan. Uh, so that may refer to liberation itself or to the path leading to liberation. Okay, so here's this is a section I was thinking of. 
Okay, so the word liberation can refer to liberation or it can refer to the path to liberation. Yeah, so liberation itself is true cessation or nirvana and is unconditioned. But the path to liberation is a conditioned phenomena. Yeah, because whenever we hear path, path means it's a consciousness. Okay, it's a wisdom mind. So we think follow the path like, you know, okay, there's a path like laid out and we, we walk, we talk like that, okay? But actually when we talk about generating the path uh, or following the path, we're talking about developing wisdom minds uh, in our own mental continuum. Okay, so the path to liberation is a conditioned phenomena. It is spoken of in the context of five heaps, ethical conduct, concentration, wisdom, liberation, and liberating wisdom. Okay, so here liberation is in the nature of the aspiration for liberation, and liberating wisdom is in the nature of the wisdom that liberates. Okay, so here the word liberation sometimes is used in the sense of the aspiration. You know, we talk about the aspiration for liberation, or when we say liberating wisdom, it's talking about the wisdom that liberates. Okay, so again, this thing of one term having uh, different nuances in different situations. So both of these, um, the aspiration and the liberating wisdom, both of, uh, both of these are elements of the liberating path that leads to cessation. So moksha, yeah, or liberation, is a true cessation that is the abandonment of afflictive obscurations. It is also translated as liberation and refers to nirvana. Okay, so moksha, yeah, is a true cessation. It's the abandonment of the afflictive obscurations. So liberation is that true cessation. Okay, and it's also translated as, uh, or moksha is also translated as liberation and refers to nirvana itself. Okay. In the Pali tradition, liberation, here vimukti, and nirvana differ in that nirvana is what is realized in the experience of liberation. Okay, so different sense here of these two words. Nirvana is unconditioned, whereas liberation is a conditioned event. In transcendental dependent origination, Liberation, remember when we went through that, the different steps of transcendental uh, dependent origination? Liberation has the proximate cause of dispassion and is the proximate cause of knowledge of the destruction of all pollutants. Okay? In contrast, nirvana is unborn, unconstructed, unmade, unmade unconditioned. It is ever-existent and does not rise through causes and conditions. Whereas when we use liberation in the context of the, the um, transcendental uh, dependent arising, their liberation is a conditioned event. Yeah, it's the cause of different results and it's the result of different causes. So liberation is the release of the mind from the defilements especially the three pollutants. So to give an analogy, so here's how the words are used. To give an analogy, nirvana is like a building and liberation is the act of entering into it. So here it's seeing nirvana as something unconditioned. Liberation is what happens as your mind gets transformed and you enter into uh, the, the buildings, quote, quote. Or another uh, analogy, nirvana is like the area beyond the finish line, and liberation is the act of crossing that line. 
Okay. Because all through this whole description where we've been talking about nirvana, one of the things that's been confusing is that nirvana means different things in different contexts. Yeah? And uh, in, in one way, it, it is seen as the object of meditation. In another way, it's seen as the, um, the abandonment of the afflictions in such a way that they can't return. And those are two different things. Yeah. But uh, we went through one part here where uh, Buddha Gosa brought the two together. Yeah, if you remember. Okay, so now the section called Bodhi. So Bodhi is generally translated as awakening or enlightenment, the, f- the final goal of our spiritual practice. Okay, although in one way it's translated as enlightenment, you know, here we see final goal of the spiritual practice, but when you talk about uh, Ashravaka's uh, Bodhi, a totalitarian realizer's Bodhi, you know, a Mahayana Bodhi, then it's they're different. Yeah, the the uh, final goal of the spiritual practice, the culmination, the result you get from following each the path of each vehicle is is different. So a Buddha's awakening is a state in which all defilements of the mind have been abandoned and all excellent qualities and realizations have been completed. The basis for attaining awakening is the essentially pure nature of mind, the natural purity of the mind, okay, which is present in all of us. So remember we were talking about two kinds of purity, the natural purity, that's the emptiness of the mind, doesn't matter whose mind it is, and then the um, the the purity that is free from the defilements, yeah, which is the emptiness of a mind that has abandoned a certain degree of defilements. Okay, so when the pure nature of the mind is obscured by afflictions, we are not awakened. When afflictions, their seeds and their latencies have been completely purified, we are fully awakened. Thus, awakening has to do with the nature of our minds. Okay. So His Holiness, keep, he, he brings us back to that because we have a tendency of thinking, you know, oh, awakening, liberation, it's somewhere, you know, uh, beyond, uh, what is it, beyond the rainbow? <laughs> yeah, and uh, way up high, and we just have to go to that particular place, and then we've got it. And uh, he's saying, no, it's it's the state of the mind. You know, your body doesn't have to go anywhere. In the perfection of Wisdom Sutras, the essential pure nature of the mind is called natural nirvana. These sutras also say the mind is devoid of mind because the nature of the mind is clear light. Okay, so that's one of those things. We come across these puzzle-sounding things a lot in the scriptures, okay? The mind is devoid of mind. What is that going to mean? Yeah, that saying the mind isn't the mind, you know? No, it's not saying that, okay? <laughs> yeah, the the mind is devoid of an inherently existent mind. Okay, the mind exists, but there's no inherently existent mind there. So both of these passages indicate that the nature of the mind does not exist inherently. The emptiness of ordinary beings' minds has not been cleansed of obscurations. Aryas have a certain degree of purity, and then the nature of the Buddha's minds is completely pure. Then there's a quote from the Praise to the Sphere of uh, Reality. Who wrote that text? Nagarjuna. Okay. Uh, So he said... When that which forms the cause for all of samsara 
is purified along the stages of the path. This purity itself is nirvana. This precise, uh, or precisely this, the Dharmakaya too. So here, when it says that which forms the cause of all samsara, okay, here the cause of all samsara could be understood as the unpurified aspect of the emptiness of inherent existence of the mind, according to Sutrayana, or as the unpurified, subtlest clear light mind, according to Tantrayana. So here, yeah, it's saying the mind is the cause for all samsara. Okay, so what it's meaning there is the polluted mind, yeah? But that, that means that our samsara is not separate from our mind. It is our, you know, it is, it is the mind. Yeah. Um, our, sam, uh, our mind makes us either in samsara or in liberation. Okay. Through cleansing that cause, the mind, the unpurified mind, nirvana is attained. That nirvana can be characterized as the truth body, the dharmakaya, specifically the nature truth body of a Buddha, which is the final true cessation and the emptiness of the perfectly purified mind. Okay, so they're equating the final true cessation with the emptiness of a mind that's completely purified with the nature dharmakaya. Yeah, equating those three. The nature truth body is one nature with the wisdom truth body, the omniscient mind of the Buddha. But one nature does not mean they're the same because the wisdom truth body is a, a conditioned impermanent phenomena and the nature truth body is unconditioned and permanent. But here, you know, we say the nature truth body is one nature with the wisdom truth body, the omniscient mind of the Buddha. So here the nature truth body is the meaning of Bodhi. So we would tend to think, oh, what is Bodhi? What is enlightenment? It's got to be the omniscient mind of the Buddha. Uh Uh-uh. It's the nature truth body. Yeah the emptiness of that fully purified mind. So again, you know, where where we're thinking of condition-changing phenomena, yeah, it's bringing us back to the unconditioned, yeah, nirvana. Okay, so that's the end of that chapter. That chapter is requires some study over a period of a long time <laughs> you know uh, with a lot of discussion yeah um, so it says the cause for samsara could be understood as the unpurified aspect of the emptiness of inherent existence of the mind mm-hmm. so emptiness can be unpurified Remember, we discussed this um, before when we were saying that uh, true cessation or nirvana is, or is the purified aspect of the emptiness of a purified mind. Because the mind and its emptiness are one nature. Yeah. So the emptiness of the mind, in one way of looking at it, It's the natural purity. It's empty of inherent existence. And that emptiness is never pure, is never contaminated by anything. But when we're talking about the emptiness of a particular contaminated or polluted mind, yeah, then, you know, although the emptiness of that mind is not polluted by anything, because it's the emptiness of a polluted mind, yeah, then, yeah, if you cleanse that mind, then that emptiness gets cleansed too. 
Okay. Then the next chapter, chapter 12, called The Mind and Its Potential. So this first section is is quite interesting. Well, the whole section here is interesting. But um, it really gives us something to to think about. So let's delve into it. So once we have recognized the unsatisfactory nature of samsara and identified its causes, the question arises, is liberation possible? If so, how do we attain it? To answer these, we must understand our mind, which is the basis for samsara and nirvana. Okay, so one thing, the mind, is the basis for both samsara and nirvana. Yeah. So attaining nirvana, again, it's not going somewhere else. Yeah. Okay, so the mind's potential. As sentient beings, beings with minds that are still obscured, we have great potential, our greatest potential being to become fully awakened Buddhas, omniscient beings who have the wisdom, compassion, power, and skillful means to be of the greatest benefit to all. So that's our goal. A natural quality of the mind is its ability to cognize objects. Yeah, I mean, the definition of mind is clarity and awareness. So that ability to cognize objects is something that makes the mind the mind. Okay? Okay. This capacity to be aware of and to know objects is already present. It does not have to be newly cultivated. So our mind, by definition, has the ability to cognize things. It isn't like we have to develop the ability. The mind has to develop the ability to cognize things. As His Holiness is going to go on to explain, rather what's happening is we have to remove the impediments uh, that prevent the mind from knowing objects. Okay, the mind is, you know, you can say it's like a mirror and you don't have to, when you have a mirror, you don't have to cultivate the ability to, the mirror doesn't have to cultivate the ability to reflect things. That's just the nature of the, the mirror. Okay. But if nothing's being reflected in it, that's because there's some kind of obscuration. You have a cloth in front of the mirror, the mirror is dirty, or it's very far away, or something like that. Okay. So this capacity to be aware of and to know objects is already present. It does not have to be newly cultivated. Nevertheless, various obstructions can inhibit the mind from cognizing objects. When these obstructions are eliminated, the mind will have no difficulty knowing all phenomena. That is a pretty strong statement telling us dum-dums that if all we have to do is remove the obstacles and then, you know, automatically the consciousness has the ability to see phenomena. Yeah, we go, oh, come on, you know, not my mind. But as he's going to go on to describe, you know, there's a lot of obscurations that prevent the mind from knowing. But the ability of the mind is is already there. It's, it doesn't have to be added on or newly cultivated. So he says, when the wall is removed, our visual consciousness can see what is there. Okay. A second... Uh, oh, wait, sorry, I skipped. Uh, okay, so one type of obscuration... He's going to go here into the different kinds of obscurations. One type of obscuration is physical matter. A wall obstructs us from seeing what is beyond it. When the wall is removed, our visual consciousness can see what is there. Clearly, yeah? You bang a hole in the wall and you can see what's on the other side. A second obstruction is distance and size. The object is too far away or too small for our cognitive faculties to come in contact with it. Okay, so that has to do with distance. Yeah, 
It's not, the object is not close enough to our, our sense faculties. To some extent, telescopes and microscopes have helped alleviate this difficulty. In these cases, we can know the object not because the mind has become clearer and better able to apprehend the object, but because the object is brought within the range of our operable cognitive faculties. Okay? So when we take out Venerable Sultram's telescope and look at the moon, then, um, okay, we can see it better because the telescope with the lenses makes the image of the moon closer to us. Similarly with a microscope. Okay, that happens. A third difficulty concerns the cognitive faculties that are the basis of the consciousness. The visual consciousness is able to perceive only visible forms, not sounds or other sense phenomena. Because it is dependent on the eye faculty... Okay. If the if a healthy eye faculty is absent, the visual consciousness cannot perceive visible forms. So our vis, uh, visual consciousness can see colors and shapes and all kinds of forms. Okay. But to do that, it's dependent on the the uh, eye sense faculty. Yeah, which is this subtle material in, inside the gross eye organ. Okay, but if the eye is, you know, if it's injured in some way or deformed in some way, so that the that sense or, uh, organ is or the sense faculty isn't functioning properly, then the visual consciousness can't perceive colors and shape and visual things. Okay, the consciousness has the potential to do it, but it's dependent on the faculty, and when the faculty is is uh, injured, then the perception can't occur. Okay? Same thing with the, your ears. Yeah, and your hearing aids help you with that. Eh, eh, what are you saying? Okay. So the type of brain a being has also influences... Um, what that being can perceive. A mental faculty dependent on an animal brain and uh, uh, one dependent on a human brain have different ranges of objects that they can know. Okay, so here, you know, what we can know depends on the, the physical organ of the brain, too. Due to the complexity of the brains of these two beings, okay, an animal uh, and a human being, the mental faculties and the consciousnesses depending on them differ in what they can perceive and understand. Yeah. And also how they perceive and what they understand. Yeah. Because uh, an animal and a human being can look at the same object and perceive two very, very different things and understand two, two very different things. Furthermore, a mind proliferating with wrong views and overwhelmed with disturbing emotions is too distracted and preoccupied to turn its attention to other objects. The range of uh, what such afflictive mental states uh, can know becomes very limited, and a calm mind can be more astute. And we can see this quite directly in our own practice, you know, when our mind is is playing, the, you know, the video of attachment, the video of resentment, the video of jealousy, whatever it is, then the bandwidth, so to speak, is consumed and we have no ability to turn our mind to anything else. Or even if we turn our mind to that and we try and understand it, our mind is foggy, you know, our mind is, uh, it's kind of, you know, we talk about when, when you uh, drink alcohol, you wake up with a, um, a hangover. When you're very, very emotional for a long period of time, yeah, what's, what is your mind like? 
it, it becomes like mush, you know? And you sit down to read a Dharma book, and it's just words. It's not going in in any kind of way. Okay. So that lets us know that we need to be careful when our mind starts spinning out, either with very, very strong emotions, to like try and catch it and apply the antidote, or when our mind is spinning out in fantasies, our mind spinning out in worries and anxiety, you know. So the mind, the um, mind is proliferating with conceptualization. Then, it, you know, it makes it very difficult to understand anything. Yeah, you see that from your own experience. I don't know. For me, it's quite obvious. I, I, it's like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, I don't understand anything because the mind is just like, it's mush. Okay, so that's a mind proliferating with wrong views and overwhelmed uh, with, with disturbing emotions. Okay, so a calm mind can be more astute. A further difficulty in knowing objects is that some objects are so subtle, profound, or vast that the ordinary mind is unable to cognize them. To know these objects, single-pointed concentration, and or wisdom that is free from wrong conceptions is needed. Okay? So, uh, you know, empty. we say emptiness is, is not, doesn't have to be created, you know, emptiness is here right now. Lama Yeshi used to say, oh, you guys think emptiness somewhere, you know, up there? It's here. It's here already. You, you know, it's not, a, it's here. Yeah. But it's a subtle object. And when we're very occupied with our senses and sex, sense perceptions uh, and the mental consciousness is undeveloped, uh, then that kind of object is too subtle for our mental consciousness to, uh, to understand or to cognize. And the sense consciousnesses can't, they do not cognize emptiness. It's the mental consciousness. Okay, so to know those objects, a single-pointed mind you know, a mind with uh, serenity or a deeper state of, of samadhi is needed to actually uh, make the mind so it can stay on the object and and have some kind of close perception of it. Yeah. Okay, so we need that or we need the wisdom that is free of wrong conceptions, for example, to apprehend emptiness. So another type of obscuration is subtle defilements on the mind that produce false appearances. These prevent us from attaining Buddhahood, the state of omniscient mind. When these subtle defilements are removed, the mind will naturally perceive all phenomena. Okay, so the latencies of ignorance on the mind, you know, are again like a, a screen that obscures uh, the mind from being able to apprehend things. Yeah, when we're able through again the using the uh, cleaning agent of the wisdom realizing emptiness to clean this the latencies, then the mind becomes able to to reflect. So the main obstructions to omniscience are the latencies of afflictions, the subtle appearance of inherent existence that they produce, and the defilement presenting, preventing seeing the two truths simultaneously. Okay, so the latencies, which produce the subtle appearance um, of inherent existence, uh, when we say the subtle appearance of inherent existence, it makes it sound like objects from their side are appearing truly existent. That's not it. It's 
we say, you know, objects appear to exist. It sounds like it's coming from them. Actually, they appear truly existent because the obscuration is coming from us. We're the one, our latencies are throwing up this veil uh, of, of the appearance of inherent existence. Okay. And then the uh, defilement preventing seeing the two truths simultaneously. So again, a fully purified mind can perceive emptiness, the ultimate nature, and conventional phenomena simultaneously. Yeah, but the mind has to be totally purified to do that, not one little speck of anything left to contaminate it. After the wisdom realizing ultimate reality eliminates the afflictive obscurations, it must cleanse the cognitive obscurations from the mind. When every last defilement is removed, the mind is totally purified and its excellent qualities are fully developed. This is the state of Buddhahood in which uh, the capabilities of the mind have no limits. The effectiveness of a Buddha's activities depend not on the abilities of that Buddha, but on the receptivity of sentient beings. So that's something quite powerful, too. You know, that the fully purified mind has no limits in any direction or in any way. And so that means that, and also because the Buddha has trained so well in all of the the far-reaching practices and in compassion and so on, a Buddha doesn't have to motivate themselves, okay? We always sit down and generate our motivation, okay? Buddhas don't have to do that because it's just so habitual in their mind that they can't do anything else, okay? So the Buddhas are just automatically without even thinking or you know, new, without any new motivation, uh, you know, radiating out all the different ways they have of sentient beings. So what makes us able to connect with that enlightening activity of the Buddha is our receptivity, okay? So when we're not receptive because our head's stuck in the, in the hole, <laughs> yeah, and our minds preoccupied with all sorts of samsara things, then, you know, no matter what the Buddhas do, they can't get through to us. So our, our role in this whole process is to uh, purify our mind. Another thing that, that struck me about the last two days of His Holiness's teachings is how many times he said, prayer will not eliminate your afflictions. Mantra recitation will not eliminate your afflictions. You know, he really hit uh, very strongly at uh, this whole thing that uh, so many, you know, the whole, the, the, the devotional side of Buddhism helps calm our mind and inspire our mind. But when we think that that alone is the path, then we're way off. Uh, but he was really hitting that, I think, um, you know, specifically because of the audience. Because uh, in countries where Buddhism has been for many, many generations and centuries, there can be, uh, and also in here where it hasn't been around for generations, just because of the human minds is, um, you know, we, we like the shortcut. And we think if we pray and we chant something and that, you know, all of that is going to make us wise and constitute all we have to do on the path. And those practices are helpful, but they're not the things that are going to purify the mind. Yeah. So he, he said that a lot, yeah. And I think this, personally speaking, this is um, one of the reasons I rely on, on His Holiness so much is because he's so down to earth. He's not like 
you know, mystical. He has his own mystical side. But normally it's not like, you know, I'll wait for the Dakinis to come and bless you and and all this kind of stuff. I mean, when he's doing Tantra, I'm sure he knows how to work with all of that stuff. But for us ordinary beings, it's like reasoning, logic, think about it, make up your own mind. Yeah, don't follow out of blind faith. Try and understand again and again. And... uh, and I think that advice is very precious because in many ways it's so much easier um, to tell people to chant a mantra or recite some prayers or recite this, recite that, you know. And, and people like that. Yeah. Oh, my lama told me to recite ten godzillion mantras. Oh, you know. Yes, I'll do that. But His Holiness doesn't tend to do that. So the effectiveness of a Buddha's activities depend not on the abilities of that Buddha, but on the receptivity of sentient beings. Bhagawan, or endowed uh, victor, or when we're chanting, endowed transcendent destroyer, okay, um, is one epitaph of the Buddha. The Buddha is endowed with all excellent qualities, and is victorious in overcoming the four maras. Okay, so the four maras. Where was I just recently? Somebody was asking me about the four maras. I can't remember, but it was not long ago. Okay, um, because they were asking about, you know, what about demons? Yeah, does Buddhism talk about demons? Yeah. And so I was explaining, you know, by what we we use the word Mara as an anthropomorphism of or, or an anthropomorphical way of talking about different obscurations. Um, although they they do say that there is one sometimes one way of looking at it. One of the Maras can be a an interfering deity. Okay, Um, so the four maras, the polluted aggregates, so we can see why they are a problem, yeah, that weigh us down. The afflictions, death, and then the fourth, distraction to external objects. So sometimes for the fourth, they talk about uh, mara being some being in one of the god realms, you know, Sometimes uh, we hear that fourth Mara as being arrogance and pride, and here it's being described as distraction to external objects. Okay, In the Pali uh, canon, we'll read stories where the Mara appears as like a character. Yeah? And when we uh, have the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, you know, Mara sending all of his daughters to seduce the Buddha and then sending all the soldiers and and weapons to destroy him and so forth. Um, so you can see it as an external being, but it's, you know, at least, or especially in the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, it's talking about, uh, you know, what's going on in the mind that's obscuring the the mind. Since the mind has the natural capacity to be aware and to understand, when all obscurations have been removed, it will be able to directly perceive all phenomena. A Buddha's omniscient mind is able to realize simultaneously both veiled and ultimate truth with a single consciousness. So that ability is unique to the Buddha, to perceive both truths with one consciousness. Okay, then the reflection. Um, Review the various factors that obstruct the mind's knowing phenomena, like distance and the sense faculty and physical obscurations and so on, 
and then contemplate that all of these can be eliminated. Yeah, that's going to start to, to stretch our mind a little bit. Yeah. And then rest in the awareness of the potential of your mind to become omniscient because all these obscurations to knowing things uh, can be eliminated. They aren't the nature of the mind. Okay. Questions? Comments? So there's an aspect of the reasoning here that I that I struggle with, and I know that part of it is my habituation to the scientific view of how the senses work. But this idea that, you know, I can't see something because it's far away or small or a wall obscures it, okay, that makes sense to me. But when I think about it, it seems like, okay, that that's why my eye sense consciousness can't perceive it. Mm-hmm. But then that like how it's phrased here in the reflection, you know, review the various factors that obstruct the mind's knowing phenomena that jump from, okay, that's why my eye consciousness can't see it to the, it seems like with the Buddha's mind, the, the mental consciousness, how, how to put it, it, it's like there's there's a link that's been taken out somewhere. It seems mm-hmm. like that idea that the, the eye sense power isn't only able to perceive forms now, but each mental consciousness can perceive all of the forms. It feels like the rules have changed there. Oh. So I don't know if that makes, isn't that true for the Buddha that each of the okay. consciousnesses yeah, can perceive when we, phenomena? Yeah, when we talk about the Buddha, okay, then the consciousnesses are cross-functional, okay, and the visual consciousness can hear and all that kind of stuff. And so is that what's puzzling to you? I, I think so, because I'm so used to thinking about the eye consciousness is connected to, the, you know, the, eye, the eyeball, the eye sense faculty and sees form, yeah. that, that now that notion of, well, any consciousness can perceive anything, thing, losing yeah. that. Yeah. So losing how that works, how the eye consciousness can hear sounds, I have no idea. That goes in the category of... Um, only a Buddha understands. Uh, Gishila, in this, you have something to add? <laughs> How does that work? Usually, many of the claims, such as this, are made far upfront in the lowers, lower tenets and lower vehicles. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to actually uh, vindicating them, and actually making the case for them, uh, the answers lie in the highest yoga tantra. Yeah. So yeah. we have to understand in terms of the most subtle, mm-hmm. clear-led mind, and its in and its substratum um, energy, which are both one and the same entity, just a way of calling them differently, with different different. Differences they have, but they are always one, and uh, that's why that is the only among the mind, the subtlest, clearer mind, is the only one um, that is unborn and undying. All the rest are dying. So whereas we don't find that being said in the lower uh, schools. Mm-hmm. They would speak of mind and general being always there and keep continuing. Whereas when it comes to uh, actually, um, what you call, dis- discriminating, making the distinction, then uh, the highest yoga tantra claim of, or their notion of the subtlest mind and the energy is the only one that is undying and the uh, uh, unborn. And when that is activated and mm-hmm. we become fully operational on that, in that all we have as our mind is the clearer mind, all we have as our body is the energy component of that, that's the state of Buddhahood where there would be no limits and the, the understanding of the objects uh, which we attribute to the senses become 
cross, uh, cross, what do you call? Yeah, uh, yeah cross function. No? Mm-hmm. Actually, in this regard, uh, one thing, where were we earlier? Yeah, whenever when we just stopped, had the point, had the caption of, is liberation possible? Mm. Right? And there you quote a statement from um, Dharma Kirti that the, mind, the nature of mind is clear light. Oh, like yeah. That. Mm-hmm. So that same statement can be understood at so many different levels. The nature of mind is clear light in the sense that the mind, mind's main fabric is not, uh, what do you call, uh, not mixed with any any pollutions. Now, another way or subtle way of understanding is the nature of mind is clear light. It points to the emptiness. Mm-hmm. And then when you say the nature of mind is clear light in the highest Yogatanta, is the subtlest clear light mind. All the rest are out of the picture. Mm-hmm. And that's how uh, we make the case uh, in a progressive way of the sense of how what we think is impossible is possible. <laughs> On page 271, in the second paragraph, rereading this doesn't help me at all. Um, uh, so you do start. So it says, yeah. In this samadhi, an arhat may focus on one aspect of nirvana. Wait a minute, 279? 271. Oh, sorry. Okay, where? So in the second paragraph. Are you counting the end of the quotation at the top as the first paragraph? Yes. Okay. So midway through the second paragraph in this samadhi. Mm-hmm. An arhat may focus on one aspect of nirvana, for example, peaceful. It seems that Shariputra is focusing on nirvana and the cessation of becoming, that is, the absence of any active karma that could bring rebirth. Mm-hmm. So that seems really conceptual sounding, but that probably is not what's going on in that mind. Yeah, I think my vague understanding of this is that all these different aspects of nirvana when they're being perceived directly you can't distinguish them yeah so saying oh he may be focusing on uh, uh you know the cessation of becoming or on peacefulness uh, you know those things conceptually we think of them as different, but uh, and act- actually, experientially, are they different? Maybe not. Does that make some sense? Yeah. But it, it I mean, it's the same way, you know, you can focus on the roundness, or you can, the cylinder-shaped, or the, you know, Mm-hmm. Are there any other texts that you would recommend for this topic of nirvana? Geshe-la? Mm. <laughs> In the Tibetan world, uh, research work, uh, such as we know in the West, is just beginning to begin, beginning to happen. So, and I think Geshe uh, Shetapkela. Mm-hmm. has uh, made a big donation to the Dibung Lusling Monastery to encourage that, uh, to encourage uh, interested scholars to engage in scientific uh, way of, uh, what do you call, um, researching particular topics. Otherwise, Topics like nirvana, etc., is something to be found in the context of a bigger picture, not in and of itself as a top topic. So this is uh, 
in the West, some efforts are made, but in the Tibetan world, that's the reason why we do not have someone called expert in Madhyamika, expert in this, PhD in Madhyamika, PhD in this, because it has to be studied altogether. Mm-hmm. And likewise, when it comes to topics, that they, 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 they come in the context within a particular topic, not as a, yeah, as a sub, separate subject. Yeah. And so this is difficult to understand, uh, difficult to answer, unless some Westerners may have done it. But uh, yeah. Tibetans, uh, you will find parts of it in particular sections, uh, yeah. but not a whole right. book. So talk of nirvana would usually come in the context, sometimes the talk of uh, discussing emptiness, discussing true cessation, but it wouldn't have a, a heading, nirvana, and then everything you always wanted to know about nirvana underneath that. Yeah. Something like that, definitely. Uh, but then this is not to say that there can be sections where they will be focused on it. Yeah. Like in Dharma Kirtis, you have seen through Kishe Shitapkila's teachings where mm-hmm. uh, the Four Noble Truths, mm-hmm. and within that the cessation, and within that cessation, uh, when cessation is explained and how it is uh, rationalized and whatnot, then that, we, that falls part of rationalizing and understanding Nirvana. Yeah. That's where you'll find more details about nirvana. Yes. Okay. Okay, let's dedicate then.